what's going on behind the scenes with your favorite Voice America show or host. For the latest news, visit the iRadio blog at iradioblog.com. The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Archaeology is often viewed as a fascinating, eclectic, and ultimately quaint pursuit. This program explores archaeology from the perspective of professionals who demonstrate that in the 21st century, archaeology and its sub-disciplines may hold the key, not only to our past, but to our present and future. Welcome to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology, with your host, Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Spend the next hour exploring where we came from and where we're headed with a leading researcher and practitioner in the field. Now, here is Dr. Schuldenrein. Good evening, everybody. This is Joe Schuldenrein with another episode of Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. Today's episode is one that has a very immediate connection to what we do as archaeologists. Uh, the name of this program is Why Archaeology Matters, Federal Funding of Archaeological Research. And unless you've been living in a cave for the past couple of years, you know that there is a strong reaction to federal funding for a variety of different types of projects, science being, uh, pure research science being one of them, everything uh, in the scientific arena and in the research arena is now under a microscope as far as the government is concerned. Uh, it's related to a variety of different types of political pressures, which we will inadvertently get into as we uh, proceed with this discussion. Um, but uh, archaeology and in particular research archaeology and its primary um, organizational uh, framework, which is the National Science Foundation, has come under a certain amount of scrutiny, to put it mildly, by uh, Republican leaders in the House of Representatives and to some degree in the Senate as well. Um, I will tell you that this will was not and is not the very first time that a variety of federal organizations that do fund archaeological research have come under attack. Uh, many of you who are of my age, uh, and that's uh, people dating back to the Pleistocene, um, remember something called the Golden Fleece Awards, which were uh, named by a senator named William Proxmire, who also targeted the National Science Foundation, as well as the Department of Defense, the Bureau of Land Management, and the National Park Service, all organizations that granted research funding to archaeology between 1975 and 1988. Uh, William Proxmire targeted these organizations as being essentially wasteful because he could not see the nature of the connection between pure archaeological research in its variety of forms 
and the benefits that they accrued to society. Um, that mentality uh, sort of disappeared during the Clinton years, and as we know, archaeological research did get a certain boost in the 1990s, and in the early 2000s, uh, it was already starting to recede. But this piece uh, by uh, uh, Eric Cantor um, basically brings this entire question back into the forefront. Eric Cantor and Lamar Smith in an article that appeared in the very popular newspaper USA Today uh, essentially questioned the nature of what archaeology does, why it benefits society, and why the National Science Foundation should essentially uh, either restructure its priorities or at least explain in very great, great detail why archaeological research is of significance and uh, applies to the greater good for Americans generally. And uh, one of their comments, one of the comments that they made, and I certainly won't be uh, reading the entire piece here, but they did acknowledge that the National Science Foundation is basically a good operation. Um, they acknowledge the fact that it is one of the better uh, investments that we can make, uh, that uh, America and, and Congress can make in the future of uh, scientific research insofar as it has very, quote, direct applications to improving the quality of life of, of most Americans. Uh, but in so doing, they targeted the National Science Foundation for presenting uh, certain awards, a variety of awards for archaeological research. I'll cite a couple of them. One was the History of Chiapas in Mexico, a grant for $280,000, uh, one that is relevant to our participants here, Mayan Architecture and the Salt Industry for $233,000, Metallurgy in Russia uh, for $135,000. And the question was federal that federal obligations have an obligation to explain to American taxpayers why their money is being used on such research. My uh, guests for this program who will explain and try to present the listening public uh, to, the, uh, to, to the issues that are at hand as far as archaeology is concerned and explain their relevance uh, are uh, Dr. Rosemary Joyce, Dr. Adam Smith, and Dr. James Doyle. Uh, Rosemary Joyce is the Richard and Rhoda Goldman Distinguished Professor in the Social Sciences and Professor of Anthropology at the University of California, Berkeley. For more than 35 years, she engaged in archaeological fieldwork in Honduras and is currently collaborating in research with Mexican colleagues while continuing research on Honduran collections. Uh, Dr. Adam Smith is Professor of Anthropology at the uh, Department of Anthropology at Cornell University and is the Director of Graduate Studies for Cornell Institute of Archaeology and Material Studies. He is also a Senior Fellow at the Institute for the Study of the Ancient World at New York University. And uh, Dr. James Doyle is a postdoctoral associate in pre-Columbian studies at Harvard University's Dumberton Oaks Research Library and Collection and is also adjunct, fa adjunct faculty member at Georgetown University in Washington, D.C. His expertise lies in the civilizations of the ancient Americas and particularly in the pre-classic period. Let's start with, uh, uh, first of all, I'd love to welcome you to the program. Thank you all for participating. Thanks. 
Thanks Thank for having you. me. Uh, Rosemary Joyce, you've been doing this for a while, um, and I know you've been involved in the political end of, of uh, archaeological explanation and in public outreach. Uh, let's start with you. Why fund studies of Mayan architecture instead of saving lives, as these two representatives have claimed? Well, if it were actually a choice between saving lives with the money and funding archaeological research, then I think anybody would say we want to put that money where it's going to save lives. But that's a false choice, as the um, representatives know themselves. Uh, why the NSF funds archaeology is the bigger question. And we fund archaeology for three basic reasons. The first is to increase the number of people in the United States who are fluent in concepts of science and technology. Archaeology is a great way to engage undergraduates, volunteers, even adult volunteers, in understanding everything from basic physics and chemistry, how, how our world is made up of things that we can trace to the sources, all the way to complex mathematics, graphing skills, geographic information systems. We're one of those sciences that actually draws a little bit from everything. So we really do increase public appreciation of science by participation. The second reason is really simple. The American public is actually interested in the past, and archaeologists produce engaging narratives about what happened in the past. The idea of going after Maya archaeology in particular is very odd because Maya archaeology is extraordinarily popular, as we all saw, with the 2012 phenomenon. And the third reason is just that we, we should be a nation that can afford to cultivate people's minds and imaginations, not just be bargaining for the bottom line and saying you can either have a medical innovation or you can have culture and understanding of other values. And Jim Doyle, you've also uh, jumped onto this uh, question of Mayan architecture and uh, its relationship to the human condition and specifically its relevance to today. You've claimed in one of your blogs that research on Mayan architecture saves lives. Would you care to elaborate on that? Sure, Joe. Um, I think uh, my reaction to this editorial was sort of twofold. Thinking about uh, research on the past, as Rosemary mentioned, is particularly important in the Maya area because of current questions of sustainability and tropical farming and uh, environmental change. And um, why I think um, I sort of took personally is because um, in the present, in today, archaeologists are saving lives of people that we work with, the communities that we are collaborating with in our research. And we are sort of engaged in this collaborative uh, effort to uh, create and, you know, create sustainable tourism to archaeological sites. But I, I think also more generally uh, encourage people to uh, have a sense of stewardship of the, the past of the nations of uh, Mexico, Central America and South America. Um, Adam Smith, let me ask you, as far as you're concerned, I mean, you're obviously, all of us are, are working in uh, an international domain, as well as doing a, a fair amount of work in, in North America. And your work in the Trans-Caucasus, you've also chimed in on this entire question of how archaeology actually opens up vistas for international cooperation and how archaeology has a direct relevance to questions of sustainability, and especially in dealing with other countries 
that have found ways to fund archaeology despite the fact that they have budgets that are severely limited by their own economic conditions. Why don't you talk about your particular region of the world? Sure, I'd be glad to. I mean, I think uh, James and Rosemary both make the point quite eloquently that uh, archaeological research, when it's deployed internationally, does a remarkable job of representing, first of all, a wave of American soft power, which is uh, a way of getting Americans into situations where they can, A, learn more about uh, places, and also, B, represent uh, the United States in ways that are not the formal dimensions of representation that come through, say, the State Department or USAID or things like that. Archaeologists are extremely well-placed to meet people on the ground in small villages in, the, in uh, places where uh, our diplomatic services rarely reach. And as a result, we serve as ambassadors to those places in a real uh, pivotal and consequential way. Uh, but I do think also that uh, there's a larger issue where uh, the question of uh, scientific uh, representation outside the United States is one that, uh, quite frankly, the United States right now seems quite beleaguered in many ways, that there's a sense that scientists from Europe and other parts of the world represent a vanguard of cutting-edge research and that uh, American research is somehow falling behind. And in, in this sense, the response from the United States government should be quite the opposite of what uh, Cantor and Smith are calling for. It should be a reinvestment, a rededication of the country to uh, representing scientific inquiry globally. So let me just play devil's advocate for one minute, getting back to your point. I mean, Cantor and Smith do claim that we are, in fact, falling far behind uh, the Chinese and, say, the Indians and uh, the emerging superpowers. Uh, but let me ask you, Adam, in particular, do you see a parallel between what you've said and, and, and how these, uh, how Cantor and Smith are portraying the position of the social sciences and archaeology in that connection? Well, I think that this is a strange irony that, in fact, if you look at uh, various measures of uh, American scientific research, there is no evidence to support the idea that we are falling behind in terms of productivity. If you look at say, citations in journals and placement of scientific articles in journals. The U.S. is far uh, uh, ahead. If you look at uh, science in American universities, of the uh, top ten universities, almost all are located in the United States for scientific research. Uh, so in that sense, uh, there is uh, a clear sense that in terms of scientific training, the United States is doing extraordinarily well. On the larger issue, though, of what Cantor and uh, Smith claim, that we are, in fact, spending more money on R&D than anywhere else, that may well be true in absolute terms, but it's not true in per capita terms. Uh, last, I, could, I was able to check the data going back to 2010, 11, 12, and 13 aren't available. And it appears that the United States is actually 10th in federal spending on research and development behind Israel, Finland, Sweden, and a range of others. Uh, so I think that 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 is what is creating the perception of American uh, America's falling behind on scientific research, not the actuality of the science the scientists who are being extraordinarily productive scientists supported by the NSF among other people. 
Rosemary Joyce, you have talked in your blog and certainly in some of your publications about how archaeology does contribute, in fact, to quality of life. And you, you've argued strongly that uh, just by learning through, uh, through media that uh, we are actually projecting and showing a, a large slice of the world by exposing a lot of people who will never see these sites to what they actually are and, and, and sort of compounding America's fascination with this sort of educational pers perspective on wide, wide knowledge of ancient civilizations. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that and how it relates to this argument? Yeah, I absolutely would second what Adam Smith is saying about the level of resources going into science in the U.S. And given that we're not the very top of the investment in science, the uh, remarkable thing is the degree to which archaeology in particular helps um, people in the U.S. through distribution on popular media, any of the cable channels that deal with the Discovery Channel, um, the History Channel, National Geographic Channel, but even network channels draw on concepts of the past all the time. Articles about the past are popular in newspapers from the New York Times to the USA Today, ironically. And what we do in archaeology with the tiny amount of funding that we actually have is explore ways of being human that don't exist in the world today. So we can spark people's imagination about the different ways that human societies have been organized, could be organized. We can draw attention to things that might be problems in the modern world, like um, extreme economic inequality. Where I work in Honduras in the Alua Valley, economic inequality never reached those extremes over thousands of years of society. So I can ask the question, what was going on in the Alua Valley that people were able to keep extreme inequality from happening. We can give people a better imagination of what's universal among humans. A lot of my writing has been about gender, about men's and women's roles in society, and showing that in many different times and places, the way that gender worked isn't to automatically put one class of people at a disadvantage to others. And these are things that are extremely popular um, among the general population of the U.S. So it's, it's mystifying why archaeology would be the target of this attack, except that, of course, the target of the attack is NSF in general, not just archaeology. And on that note, we're going to take a brief break, and we'll be right back uh, with our panelists right after these words. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Each week, Jimmy Gould brings you the stories and the people that you want to hear about. Tune in to A Current Life to hear about the journey to success, how our guests became the people they are today, and the highs and lows they experienced along the way. Each hour will leave you inspired and entertained as Jimmy gets up close and personal with every week's guest and shares ideas you can identify with and apply to your own life. A Current Life with Jimmy Gould airs Fridays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. There are over 140 million products manufactured worldwide. 
It is impossible to know the ingredients in these products, especially those made overseas. Stan Salat Jr., President and CEO of the HSF Mark and the Counterfeit Mark Alliance, is the host of People to People, working together for your safety. Stan believes in our right to know the type and amount of hazardous materials in consumer products and whether they are counterfeit. Find out how you can protect yourself every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Variety. Come back to your senses. Imagine a radio show that will help you recover your common sense. Host Leah Brenda Smith is a health and wellness specialist who will explain techniques designed to help you recover from the stress of your life. It's all about how you respond to your thoughts. A little bit of self-awareness can go a long way in helping you to relax and enjoy your life. Tune in to Come Back to Your Senses Radio, live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com listening to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to joseph.schuldenrein at gra-goarc.com. Now, back to the program. And this is Joe Schuldenrein, and we're back with our second segment on a program entitled Why Archaeology Matters, Federal Funding of Archaeological Research. And we've been discussing with our three distinguished panelists an article that appeared in the September 30th issue of USA Today, an article that was written by Representative Eric Cantor and Lamar Smith, uh, entitled Rethinking Science Funding. And in that article, the authors, who are clearly well-known members of the House of Representatives, the U.S. Congress, were questioning the priorities of the National Science Foundation funding program and the research objectives that were being funded. And they indicated, and I cite for the end of the last part of their article where they say, quote, reprioritizing the government's research spending in favor of improving Americans' quality of life is not anti-science, it is common sense. We look forward to working with the NSF to address these concerns and to better uh, and to create a better process for evaluating research proposals. End quote. Um, evaluating research proposals, research proposals. Uh, Rosemary Joyce, uh, what is involved in this? Is it just uh, simply some people making decisions about what should be funded and what shouldn't be funded? And what is the NSF's uh, p- process for reviewing what does go- get funded and what does not? The NSF process is actually a wonderful thing, partly because it relies on the freely contributed labor of top scientists throughout the country. We are sent proposals, be it uh, electronically, and asked to read and provide usually quite detailed comments back to all of the uh, people who submitted them, whether they end up receiving funding right away or not. So 
the scientists themselves play a huge role in the peer review process. There's careful selection to make certain that you don't have a relationship as an advisor or a, a close colleague. So these are really objective members of the scientific community, and we all do this as free service. One of the things that we're asked to look at is what's called the intellectual merit. So that's just you know, the abstract, what we in the scientific community think are the important ideas that will come out of the research. And that's critically important because it means the small amount of, of funding that archaeology, for example, has will go to those ideas that the research community thinks have the best chance of giving us truly transformative knowledge. But the other thing we're asked to look at is what are called broader impacts. And the broader impacts criterion is actually quite useful because it asks, how is this research going to do more than just give us that narrow slice of science? It's the broader impacts criterion that asks, how is this going to contribute to increasing the number of people in the U.S., whether they're engaged in science professionally or not, who understand and appreciate it? And it's through those two criteria and the free labor of all of the scientists in the U.S., that the NSF has actually achieved a remarkable goal of awarding limited funding to the very best projects. Um, Adam Smith, let me ask you, is it really a question of reprioritizing? Is it an either-or question? Uh, if we fund a project, say, uh, let's pick on the Maya architecture study, uh, does the, that money, would that money be better spent in terms of just applying it to, say, as they, they cited in their article, to Alzheimer's research? I mean, what are we talking about scale-wise, and what is, the, uh, what, is the, what is really behind this question of prioritizing objectives? That's a really good question. Uh, for the last years that I could find the data, the total NSF budget was about $6.8 billion. Uh, the Social, Behavioral, and Economic Sciences Division, which archaeology falls under, uh, is a, a remarkably small slice of that uh, budget. Uh, and by my calculation, it represented about 3.5% of the total NSF budget. So a very small portion of the uh, of the budget. So it's hard to speak of archaeology being prioritized in any way, despite the cherry-picking uh, of a few projects uh, in their list that seem to be largely archaeological. Just as an aside, I did a quick calculation that the entire SBE division budget, the Social Behavioral and Economic Sciences budget within the NSF, is about 0.000001% of the current federal debt. So if the issue is really prioritizing because these are conditions of scarcity and one needs to uh, tighten one's belt, uh, this seems like a very uh, uh, inefficient target since the potential savings are so uh, minimal. So I don't think that it's really a question of prioritization. As I work in Armenia uh, and have done for the last 20 years or so, and there it's a remarkably small uh, country. The budget of the, the Armenian government is also relatively small, and yet their uh, Academy of Sciences is uh, capacious. It's one that does not try and just imagine science as instrumental in improving quality of life. It conceptualizes science broadly as any endeavor which improves understanding and illuminates our world. And so where, what is the motivation for this and, and why 
are we being cast in this position? And how, let me ask you in, in a broader sense, uh, Jim Doyle, you could weigh in on this. Um, why has it come to this? And, and why are we talking about this on a scale that is clearly so extreme? Um, do you have any thoughts on, on why this is being presented this way? Well, I would like to kind of um, reiterate what Rosemary said about the intellectual merit and broader impacts, but kind of what I took issue with mostly was that the article makes it sound as if it's easy to get NSF funding, that these questionable projects are just sort of sailing through uh, instead of putting that money towards other research. So I think that was one of the sort of logical um, uh, problems with this article is that, uh, you know, the peer review process is, and, and I think Rosemary said this in her blog, it is grueling. It is not, and ask any graduate student like myself who went through the process twice to try and get funding for dissertation research, it is completely, um, you know, a very difficult process. And they, that really does make sure that only the, the projects that have both intellectual merit and broader impacts rise to the top. Um, and as far as why they're uh, focusing on this now, what struck me about this timing was that, you know, this article came on the eve of the government shutdown. And I think the timing is not coincidental by any means, because suddenly you have the day before the government shuts down an article saying, look at, look at what the government is doing with our money, the people, and we are funding these, this frivolous, questionable research, and it's, it's automatically linking it in the minds of the public reading USA Today or seeing it online that this is one of the problems about our budget these days, which, as Adam most clearly pointed out, is clearly just wrong. Adam Smith, let me ask you then, on this particular situation, I mean, those of us who are in the community, those of us who know basically how, what kind of monies and what scopes and scales of funding we have to deal with, this is essentially sort of not attacking a problem here, but it's sort of beating around the edges when you're talking about financial outlays on a governmental scale. Um, what are your thoughts on, on why then, why this topic? and why now? Well, I think the why now point, uh, James, is absolutely right, that the eve of the government shutdown seemed like a particularly good moment to try and discredit uh, uh, work of government-sponsored research. But I think that it arises from two particularly broader uh, sources. One is just a general misunderstanding of what science is actually about. They frame it largely in instrumental terms as improving the quality of life. But I think for most scientists that I know, at least, science is not directly instrumental in that way. It is a, a approach to inquiry. It's a open-mindedness to possible reasons for causes and events happening in the world. And it is not immediately a search for a cure for cancer, for example, even though that clearly depends upon scientific research. Science is much more about creating a particular kinds of minds that are open, critical, engaged with empirical data, and that, as a result, are open to the possibility that the world could be something other than what it is. Uh, what Rosemary very nicely said, that archaeology can teach you about other ways of life. 
So I think that the second source of uh, this issue being framed by Cantor and Smith's article is that the possibility that there are other ways of life where inequality is less, where uh, we have a different approach to living on the land, where we have different relationships to ecological circumstances, just for example, that undercuts uh, certain aspects of contemporary political agendas, which don't particularly want to see that there are other ways of living. Rosemary, let me go back to you for a minute on this. Let me uh, play devil's advocate again in a sense. Uh, how do we deal with this? Is it our job? Can we establish a forum in which we can basically say, look, this is what we're doing. We need a forum to explain what the relevance of what we do is to the greater good or that this is not an either or situation if you don't fund, if, if you fund Mayan architecture or if you find, if you fund uh, an international project in a, say, remote part of the world, you will basically be uh, depriving uh, soldiers, as they said, of a prosthetic device. How would you respond to that? And what is, uh, what is our obligation as, our, as archaeologists and members of the community to, in a sense, fight back and to really sort of put it on the table from our perspective? Yeah, I, as I wrote, um, I had no idea I personally was killing anybody by doing my research. Um, but sure. I, think, I think we actually, in archaeology, again, another reason why we're an odd target to take, already understand that it's incumbent on us, not just on the NSF, to share our research with the general public. We have uh, the Archaeological Institute of America sending out traveling lecturers to communities all across the U.S. Um, archaeologists are often giving talks at local museums, schools, and libraries. Here at Berkeley, every graduate student is required every semester to do some sort of public outreach, whether it's with schools or museums or just the general community. So we have an ethic already of giving back to the public incredibly broadly. Uh, but that's probably what we need to actually return to, refocus, and continue to make even more accessible we have to step back and say, in this age of the Internet, how many people are out there um, blogging about basic research? How many people are out there trying to reach populations that maybe don't have cable television, don't watch the History Channel, don't watch National Geographic? So we need to actually explain to the general public what archaeology can help them understand about their world. Now, this doesn't mean we have to reduce what we're doing to utilitarianism. And I absolutely agree with Adam and James on this because science is actually about developing the capacity to come up with great new ideas. Companies in the U.S. depend on university sector scientists to do a lot of the what if, throwing the ball up in the air, thinking it creatively work, because companies can't afford to do that. They need to develop those ideas commercially in a quick time frame. So even though archaeology is the tiniest piece of the NSF budget, I think we, we are an example of how the public investment in research actually pays off, not in direct products, but in that capacity to think and that's the part that I think we need to really get outside to the public is the idea that if I find out something interesting about chocolate from NSF-funded research, which I did, that doesn't have to translate directly into commodity products made of chocolate. 
Hershey's has already done that. What my finding things out about chocolate can do is spark our understanding that humans have always experimented with food and with different kinds of preparations of food. Adam Smith, let me ask you the same question again, again in, a, in a different context. We are obviously, to some degree as a profession, under assault here. How do we get our message out? Um, do we go directly to, say, the editorial board of USA Today? Uh, do we take a variety of other initiatives to disseminate our message um, to a broader audience uh, in a way that we haven't done before? Are we doing everything right to communicate the message that, that this is a sense? Uh, sort of an assault on what we do. I think uh, I think that those are all good things to do, and I think uh, Rosemary said it quite well that we can always be better at communicating to the public the value of archaeological research. I will say though that I think archaeology remains remarkably uh, popular. Um, broadly speaking. And indeed, I'd love to see uh, some kind of uh, larger survey on whether people would rather spend 220000 on architecture of the prehistoric Maya or on the salaries for the members of the House of Representatives. <laughs> I think we might win that one. Uh, right. At the present moment, particularly, it seems like a good chance. <laughs> but, uh, but we can certainly always be better at uh, communicating the, uh, both the real discoveries that are made but also communicate the real passion that drives the career of the archaeologists. And in this sense, you know, shows like your own are excellent examples of uh, that, uh, how we communicate the passion for the past. And on that note, we will take another break, and we will be back very shortly after these words. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. American Heroes Network is a program for and about our American veteran heroes and their families. Join Gary Ray with his co-host Linda Crater and other prestigious co-hosts as they show what is being done to help our veterans and showcase the companies and organizations that are helping our veterans and their families rebuild their lives. Listen for American Heroes Network, live and powered by the Voice America Variety Channel, every Tuesday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time. Tune in to Patricia Raskin Positive Living on VoiceAmerica.com every Monday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time. This program brings you practical and inspiring principles for living a more authentic, engaging, and passionate life. Patricia's guests will give you a formula for connecting, giving, forgiving, and miraculous living. So tune in and call in to Patricia Raskin Positive Living Mondays at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time right here on the Voice America Variety Channel. It's practical, positive solutions for a happy, empowered, and successful life. Are you a single parent trying to create the balance between home life and work life? You may be running a successful business, but how are your relationships with your family and children? If you're one of the thousands of people trying to juggle it all, tune in to Straight Up with Chris, real talk on business and parenthood, hosted by Chris FSU. Chris is the portrait of the success story. Coming to the U.S. with no language skills, founding and growing several businesses while raising his daughter from age 7 to adulthood as a single dad. Listen every Thursday at 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific on Voice America Variety. 
stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. listening to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to joseph.schuldenrein at gra-goarc.com. Now, back to the program. This is Joe Schuldenrein, and we're back with our very distinguished panel of archaeologists, and we are speaking again about the uh, article that appeared in the September 30th, 30th issue of USA Today, and uh, the appeal was uh, on the part of members of the House of Representatives as to what the priorities of the National Science Foundations were for funding projects, and uh, they launched sort of a, uh, uh, let's just say, a questioning approach, if you will, on how the types of archaeological projects that are being funded. And during the break, we discussed uh, the entire question of cultural diplomacy, uh, the U.S. projecting itself in itself internationally as a force of good in a sense insofar as we look at the connection between archaeology and, 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 and the world of sustainability and the world of in a sense climate change and, and, and how we are being ambassadors for trying to show these connections between, uh, between past cultures and civilizations and environments and change and sustainability and the need for projecting forward and for uh, projecting a positive image in the world. Rosemary Joyce, you've had a lot of experience in this world uh, working with uh, with Latin American uh, cultures in the Mayan area and in in, uh, in in Belize as well. Why don't you give us a little bit of perspective on what cultural diplomacy means to you and, and, and uh, how we can continue to project a positive image? Well, the broader, broader federal funding for archaeology, um, which comes from a number of different places, actually has direct impact in getting American citizens out in other countries doing good. Um, I was a Fulbright Fellow for my dissertation in Honduras, which at that point was the poorest country in the Americas. And part of what I was doing was helping the Honduran nation make an inventory of its archaeological sites before they were destroyed by development. That was something that the government of Honduras simply didn't have the funding for. Now, there's a place where putting money into archaeology would really have been a wrong choice. But my coming in and helping do this task with a very small investment from the U.S. made that great good impression. And I've seen that over and over again with other people on Fulbright's. Uh, as a Fulbright senior scholar, I was able to go and be one of the first visiting professors at the first master's in archaeology at the University of Costa Rica. Again, training a whole new generation of students in Latin America in our way of looking at archaeology, which is seen as the cutting edge and which provided inspiration to students to go in Costa Rica to go out and do better archaeology, produce their own histories, all for a tiny fraction of the cost that might have been involved in some broader 
large-scale government investment. That kind of funding for archaeology and NSS grant, doctoral dissertation improvement grants, some of which were among the targets of, of uh, the House of Representatives members, are really cheap, less than $20,000, um, ways to send a brilliant young American to another country to show just how much technical innovation and sheer scientific aptitude um, we have as one of the most positive images that you can have of Americans abroad. James Doyle, you've been working in the same part of the world, and uh, I'd just like to get your perspective on what Rosemary said and, and your experience going forward since you're a younger scholar and you're working in the same area. Are you seeing the fruits of this type of diplomacy in that part of the world? Definitely, and I'd like to echo uh, what Rosemary said about the, the collaboration with students and uh, faculty members at local universities. Uh, where I worked in Guatemala, um, I uh, had such productive time there learning about their ways of learning archaeology and sort of sharing my own perspective on archaeology. And I think that is a very fruitful relationship, especially because those are going to be the future intellectuals of these countries. And they are going to be in the government of these countries someday. So um, that perspective is, I can't emphasize that enough. And I think one other way that, um, you know, as a, a dissertation uh, grantee in Guatemala, what I realized is that the people that we collaborate with in the local communities and, and in the communities that um, are contracted to, to be excavation assistants or, or camp assistants and all of these um, economic, means of economic development um, with, with these projects, you know, these people are going back and forth to the United States of America. Um, most of the people that I worked with are, had either been to the United States or were one degree away from someone who was there now, had been there, had just come back. And so I think that, um, you know, it's very short-sighted to, to think within the U.S. borders when we talk about improving the quality of lives of Americans. And as far as cultural diplomacy is concerned, you know, this is, is uh, giving people in these countries economic resources and get, making the U.S. Uh, seem to them in a positive light because a lot of them don't necessarily have a great opinion of the U.S. from uh, the news media in these particular countries. So I think for me as a graduate student working down there, I realized, you know, this is much, this has much more of a broader impact than I thought in the first place. Adam Smith, uh, you've worked in a totally different part of the world, one that was uh, certainly until the early part of the 1990s dominated by the Soviet, Soviet Empire, and you have worked in the Transcaucasus areas for a long time. Do you see an increased American influence and a sort of a positive initiative that's been launched by your bringing in sort of the perspective of the Americanist anthropological model and uh, applying it to archaeology in that part of the world, which for so many years was sort of isolated? Oh, absolutely. And I can see it on a couple of different scales. Uh, on one level, I arrived uh, in Armenia just a few months after the collapse of the Soviet Union. So uh, all of the institutions of the state were in utter disarray. The economy was a shambles. 
the institutions of governance were in crisis. Armenia was also at the time in the midst of a, uh, an, a conflict with its neighbor, uh, Azerbaijan. The entire society was in uh, disarray. And as a result, much of the what was a truly advanced scientific infrastructure was falling apart. And people, the, the really skilled people who were in the Academy of Sciences and in the Institute of Archaeology in particular were leaving the field because it seemed not possible to feed one's family and maintain oneself as an archaeologist. And so we, were, uh, we began our collaboration under these conditions, and thanks in large measure to the support of institutions like the National Science Foundation over a continual period of time, our research served as an incubator for a large number of uh, current leadership of the Institute of Archaeology, uh, training new students, uh, exposing uh, new and existing specialists to new techniques uh, developed from uh, Western science. And as a result, now, uh, what now, Twenty over 20 years since I first got there, uh, the institutions are now stabilized, and in fact, we are now getting financial support from the government of Armenia, as well as uh, from American sources. So I see that kind of institutional scale where NSF and other agency support provided a real lifeline to these uh, uh, scientific infrastructures that otherwise would have gone into complete shambles. On a more local level, one of the places where I see it most touchingly is uh, when one's gathered around the table with folks in the small communities up in the mountains where we work, one often hears time and again the idea that I had no idea the places where I'm living were of importance to anyone. And yet you come here from a long way away from the United States here to study the places where we live. And it means so much to us that uh, you take us seriously and that you think that what we have to give to the world is interesting and important. And that plays a truly powerful role in alleviating much of the conditions of uh, of true despondence that one often finds in uh, conditions where economic development is not taking root. So while there is an instrumental effect that we pay salaries, we for a long time were the largest employer in the small area of Armenia where we, where we work, I think the larger follow-on effect is, is a sense that people came from the United States to study this place and to give it a sense of global visibility. I think that that's extraordinarily important. And let me ask you, uh, in the course, I mean, this is, as you said, it was an incubator, and now we have witnessed, uh, uh, what is it, 25 years since since the collapse of the uh, the Soviet Empire. Has the image of the United States uh, changed significantly, uh, and in part because of the type of work that NSF and your type of research and your kind of involvement with those communities, um, has it changed significantly since that participation? participation and how how do you see it going forward I think it has, and I think it has in at least one important way. Uh, Armenia has always had a relatively close relationship with the United States, thanks to the large Armenian diaspora that's here. So even during the Soviet period, uh, the U.S. was a, a, a presence, if only largely imaginary presence. And what meeting real uh, Americans, uh, whether professors or students, uh, uh, teachers, and that's helped give real concreteness to what America is. 
to the extent that America exists in the international imagination merely as a place where the streets are lined with gold on one hand or where everybody carries a gun, we suffer as merely being a caricature of what our society is really like. But one of the wonderful things about archaeology and, uh, is that we tend to stay in one place for quite a while. And so we can break through those caricatured representations of each other, of one another, to really understand what life is like. And it's, as a result of this, it's complicated folks' understanding of what the U.S. is when it turns out that the streets aren't made of gold and not everybody carries a gun wherever they go, that it's a, a place where people much like them often struggle to make ends meet and uh, go to work, educate their kids, etc. It, it gets rid of that kind of caricature that often happens in contemporary geopolitics. And Rosemary, the same question to you. I mean, you've been working in Honduras, Central America, and the Mesoamerican domain for a long, long time uh, under a different political uh, geopolit geopolitical context. How have you seen changes in your research and academic lifetime that, uh, in terms of the effect of, of your work and the interchange between U.S. and, and, uh, and the Honduras government and the population, how has that improved and how has the image of the United States changed over the past 25 years? Um, these things actually, as Adam said, there's the local level, and that's what I would like to stress, is that archaeologists routinely are out in remote areas of the country where no other U.S. Um, government representatives, for example, don't go out to the places where our research is, or even if they come to the city that I work near, they're not going to make it out into the neighborhoods. They won't be living as I was in a barracks along with banana workers. So we have had an impact on these face-to-face, one-on-one levels um, of humanizing what can sometimes be seen as a vast power, and by actually making the point that we're, uh, that vast power includes a lot of people that are just like local people. And there's nothing like the connection that comes when you're talking to somebody and they understand that and they articulate that themselves, that they see that you're really interested in what they're doing. They appreciate the fact that you've come such a long distance and are living in conditions that they themselves know or think are not common in the U.S. So that local level of, of uh, penetration, most concretely, I can see when they're in the, the 2000s, um, Honduran citizens began to create uh, stewardship programs for their own archaeological sites, and these are ongoing. They're not even chartered necessarily by the Honduran government, let alone supported by the U.S. government, but they're inspired by the fact that U.S. archaeologists kept coming back year after year, working with the communities. And that's long-term good for the civil society in Central America, in places like El Salvador, which experienced a long-term civil war. Um, archaeology and cultural identity have been very important to post-Civil War reconstruction of the country. And the U.S. Um, and U.S. archaeologists have been an important part of that process. Uh, the U.S. government has even been an important part of that process through something called the Ambassadors Fund, which makes very small grants to um, foreign governments to do things like develop new museums. So we definitely, over the course of my time, my 30-plus years 
in archaeology abroad, I can see how this kind of presence of archaeology representing the U.S. as a positive force has, at the very least, complicated what might otherwise have been a simplistic picture of the U.S. and its interests, and at the very best, created a positive image where one might not have been. And what about on the larger scale, on the governmental scale? I mean, obviously, you've been to Honduras for many, many years. Uh, your familiarity with the way things work on the national scale obviously has also changed. Are you seeing a broader perspective for cooperation between the governments? Well, there I'm actually privileged to serve on something called the U.S. Cultural Property Advisory Committee. And on that level, we advise the State Department when foreign governments, including Honduras, but not limited to Central America, coming from all over the world, approach the U.S. to ask for its help in protecting cultural heritage elsewhere. So from that perspective, I can definitely say that there's a global positive role for archaeologists to play that is recognized both by the U.S. government and by governments abroad. And Jim, uh, your perspective going forward, you sort of came on board a little bit later than the rest of us, and, and you're starting to uh, function archaeologically in a world that's somewhat changed, and where do you see it going forward in terms of cooperation with, uh, with the governments? Um, I, from, from my experience in Guatemala, uh, when I first arrived in 2002, um, there was only talk about Tikal and uh, Ishimche and the big, pretty sites that had already been developed in the 70s and 80s as tourist destinations. And I would say in the last three to four years, there's been huge momentum in Guatemala by both Guatemalan funding sources, so corporations and uh, nonprofit organizations in Guatemala run by Guatemalans and with Guatemalan funding, um, and international organizations uh, specifically uh, working in development, like the World Bank, the IADB, and um, the other funds from other governments, such as Japan and other things, that are really focusing on developing archaeology as a way to development for Guatemala. And I think that is probably true for many countries in Latin America and, and around the world. So I think, from my perspective, it's, it's great in the sense that and it's building up national archaeology programs from within. And that's why the U.S. Uh, needs to continue being a leader in these areas, because uh, there is that momentum, and they are drawing on the experience of NSF-funded research that, like Rosemary said, went out to the places that no one was going to to begin with. And on that note, I'm afraid we're going to have to wrap up our discussion with our very distinguished panelists, Adam Smith, Rosemary Joyce, and Jim Doyle. And I guess the message that we'd like to convey to Eric Hampter and Lamar Smith is basically you're picking on the wrong people in the wrong organization. And on that note, I want to thank you very much for participating and uh, look forward to seeing everybody, listening to everybody next week. Thank you very much. Thanks again for tuning in to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Please join us for another unique journey into the past next Wednesday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. In the meantime, think about the past with an eye towards the future and a better tomorrow. Tomorrow.